What do you think your most valuable resource is? Do you think it's the money that you have in your pocket, wallet, bank account? Is it friends or relationships? People? What do you think the most valuable resource that you have? I think one resource that we sometimes don't consider in those questions is the resource of our time. Have you ever thought that you could spend your money, but you know, you could get it back? You could lose a friend, but you could gain a new one. But you can't get time back. The preciousness of time is unlike any other resource that we have on this earth. The Bible seems to give us the indication that God created time and He lives outside of time. He's made a world where we live and exist with days and months and years. This morning's message, we're going to consider the idea of time. We've been thinking a lot about the created world, about matter, about space, about material things. But today as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're going to think about time. If you turn your Bibles to page 2, I'm going to read the passage that's before us this morning. And I want us to consider this morning three pictures, three ideas for how to understand this idea of time. Let's look first at this passage, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. He had, that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. One of the things I want us to think about is the uniqueness of this day. And I think one thing that you may not realize is that medieval scholars, and I think one in particular, is, is the the timetable for which these chapter divisions happened in your Bible. So right now we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But hopefully we're all at least aware, and if you're not, be aware of the fact that chapter 2 did not exist when these scrolls were being written down in the book of Moses, book 1, Genesis. Even the name Genesis didn't exist. These were five books of Moses. And so if we were to break them apart into paragraphs like we see in English, we have scholars' attempts to try and do that. And I think one difficulty that's before you as you read this is you separate these verses that I just read with the rest of chapter 1. And I really don't think that that was the best move in those medieval scholars. And so we're just stuck with what we have. But let's just imagine those didn't exist. You'd read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, and then you'd see in chapter 2, verse 1, I think what you'd have is called an inclusio, which is two borders or two ends, 
that's trying to tell you that this is the beginning and the end, and here's a unit of thought, and I think the unit of thought happens all the way through verse 3, and then in verse 4, you have a new section that's being started. So if Pastor Phil were to be the one that orders the chapters, I would say chapter 2, verse 4 should have been the new chapter, but we've had this for centuries, and it'd be really confusing if we ordered our Bibles, so we're not going to do that, and I'm certainly not the one to do it either. The point is this, if we take these three verses in the flow of what just happened prior to them, aren't there a lot of interesting things to observe? Did you notice any of them as we read? For example, go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 and notice the language, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. We saw this repetition. It happens in verse 6 again. And God said, let there be. And then there was. And then he called it something. And then he has an explanation throughout the days of it being good. And then he says there was morning and there was evening. And the pattern continues. And God said, and then it was. And then he called it something. And then it was good. And then it was morning and then there was evening. But then we get to the seventh day. We get to chapter 2, verse 1. Do you notice that it doesn't say, and God said? Did you notice that it doesn't tell us, and then it was? Another interesting observation is the idea of blessing. God does bless things in the prior six days of creation. He blessed the animals let them be fruitful and multiply. He blessed the humans, let them be fruitful and multiply. But where does he bless a day in days one through six? The answer is nowhere. Blessing a day? What does that mean that you're blessing a day? So God blessed the seventh day. This is starting to stand out. I hope you're starting to see that these three verses in the pattern of days one through six to get to day seven, this is a very different kind of day. It's a blessed day. It's a holy day. There's no repetition of, and God said. The other thing you want to think about is this idea we've been talking about of triads. There's three days, day one through three, and days four, five, and six, and how they match up. So then day seven has no partner. It has nobody to go with. It's kind of on its own. I think that, again, is intentional. In other words, I think if you were to read days one through six, like we argued last week, day six is the climax of his material creation, but it is not the climax of his creation. Day six is the climacting thing, material thing he makes, but the climax of the creation story of days one through seven is day seven. We should notice that there is a lot of reasons for us to see this day as very special and very set apart, not just from the observations made already, but from a few other observations in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 in the ancient Near East and then really throughout the whole Bible. So here's the first picture I want to propose. 
I think in order to just get into this biblical, literary world, historical world, and then somehow understand, okay, what's going on here? I think God is making a sacred day. So think of a government-sanctioned holiday. This is picture number one. Think of Memorial Day, July 4th. Think of President's Day, Thanksgiving. What all these days have in common in our government system is that you are to take work off and you are to remember something. You are to treat that day as special. You are to honor the men that died on those days, the women that gave their lives, etc., etc. That is, I think, a helpful picture that in the calendar of even our normal everyday lives as American citizens, our government has sanctioned days, sacred days, holy days, if you want to call it that. That's the illustration or image I think we should have in our heads as we look at this day, day seven. But the peculiar thing about this day is it's not just one day out of the week, nor is it just one day out of the year. It's an everlasting day. One of the patterns we saw through Genesis chapters, chapter 1 in the, the six days of creation was there was mo- evening and there was morning, and there was evening and there was morning. And we get to the seventh day, and did you notice that there is no evening and morning? Again, the pattern is broken. And I don't think that we should say, oh, well, that's just, he forgot to put that in there. Almost every single scholar I've talked to or read seems to suggest that this is an eternal day. It is a restful period that has continuing effects. So the fact that it has no evening and morning is to help us understand that God has set apart this day as a continued time period of day seven for us to see it as sacred and holy, that When God finished his work of creation, it is set apart to be holy and different. I want you to also think about the idea of sevens. Do you remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned that the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. How many Hebrew words? Seven. If this is the other end of that section, Should you be surprised that there are three sets of seven sentences? And that in the middle of each of these three sets of seven is the word seven. There's just a lot of strangeness going on with the sevens. And I don't want to maybe read too much into it and make it seem like, wow, you've got to know crazy stuff to understand the Bible. I think it's clear if you read the Bible and you don't really know Hebrew, you didn't know that seven was the middle word in a series set of three seven sentences. If you just knew the big picture of the Bible, you would get the idea that seven is an important idea. Further throughout the book of Exodus, as we had in our Old Testament scripture reading, if we keep reading, we'll see that the whole Days and weeks are set up in Exodus chapter 16. Do you remember that the manna came down six days, but on the seventh day, no manna came down? You know that in the Ten Commandments, it says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And six days you shall work, but on the seventh day, you're to rest and do no work. Do you know that throughout the laws of Moses, it talks about 
the years of Jubilee and that every seventh year the land was to rest and you were to do no farming and work on the land that you were living in. And that every seventh times seven years, so every 49th year is a, a year of Jubilee where there's the forgiveness of debts and the poor are to be given all of their debts freed and all this sort of social justice implications for the year of Jubilee is spoken of throughout Leviticus. So by reading just the first five books, you're seeing this pattern of sevens, seven years, seven days, seven sets of seven. You read the book of Daniel and you notice that exile happens when? Seventy years. And that the great and final exile will be seven times seventy. So there's all through the Old Testament a symbol of sevens. And if we keep reading the story, we notice that on the first day of Jesus' public ministry, he goes back home to Nazareth and he opens up a scroll in Isaiah chapter 61 that's talking about that very Sabbath of Sabbaths, the year of Jubilee. And Jesus reads the scripture. He sits down and he says these most amazing words. This scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you remember the story, the people listening are like, wow, this guy, he's a good speaker, and they're impressed, and I thought this guy was just a carpenter from Nazareth. Look at Jesus. He's become something. As he explains what he is going to do and what all of this means, they quickly don't feel the same anymore, and they end up getting really angry with Jesus. Read the story in Luke chapter 4. But the important thing is to notice that Jesus reads the year of Jubilee in Isaiah 61, and he says, I am the year of Jubilee. I am the forgiveness of debts. I am the day of rest. Find your rest in me. This is why we had the scripture reading earlier, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. I think one of the things you need to realize is that the Bible is telling us a story about these series of sevens to eventually help you understand who Jesus is. And really, the whole future orientation of the world, Hebrews chapter 4 says there is a Sabbath rest that still remains for you. If that rest was found in the Sabbath day when you took a day off, or if it was found in the rest that Joshua gave his people when they made it to the land of Canaan, then why did the Old Testament prophets and psalmists speak of a further day of rest? Because there is a further day of rest. And that you and I can strive and enter into that rest when we realize that there is a rest to come. Revelation is a book full of sevens. Lots of symbols of seven bowls and seven images and seven stages of different things. And eventually all the sevens come to a completion. And God is with man. They are dwelling together in perfect harmony. There is no more temple. There is no more sun. The glory of the Lord is filling the whole earth. Heaven and earth are one. If we take this whole big story of Scripture, are you starting to see that in the very beginning, right here in Genesis chapter 2, God is telling us that there is a special seventh day that He blesses, that He makes holy. And this day is set apart, and it's not just a day, it's a perpetual day where it's talking about the rest of God and that we are to enter that rest. The people of Israel were to do that once a week, 
do it once every seven years, once every 50 years, all as patterns pointing forward to Jesus saying, all of those were types and shadows pointing to me. I am the fulfiller of that rest. And when we read the book of Revelation and it tells us the conclusion of that story, we realize that this rest is about God and man coming and living and dwelling together. So I want to ask you, friends, do you think of your time as precious? That you would want to honor the Lord with your time, every moment of it? I think that's one of the things we should be taking away as we consider that this Scripture in front of us, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, tells us that there is a Sabbath day that is made holy. It is sacred. It is like a memorial day. Yesterday, there was a funeral here at this church of a former Mount Prospect Bible member. Yesterday, I was actually taking a jog past a gravesite burial, and so I was thinking about the idea of even sacred days when someone passes away. They're kind of etched out in your memory of like, that's the anniversary, that's their death. You never forget them. You go back to the graveside and you lay flowers down. You memorialize it. You know, the memorial day that we're supposed to take a day off, the nation's government, I don't think did that so you can party and get crazy with your friends at the poolside. I think it was for us to not just take time off of work, but to be thankful, to remember what has happened for us to have the freedoms that we have. Do you see how this is a helpful picture? The seventh day when God blesses and makes this day holy is to tell us that God in His creation is doing something and we should reflect on it. We should remember it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when the Ten Commandments are given a second time, the reason why you should remember the Sabbath day is because the Lord your God saved you out of Egypt, he tells Israel. You should remember what God did to save you out of Egypt. So I want to ask you, do you think about your time as a time that honors the Lord, or is it just for you? Do you see that in the same way that God makes this material world, and as we argued a few weeks back, he made sacred space for God and man to dwell together? Basically, the best way to summarize these verses is to say God is making sacred time where God enters into not just our space physically, but our time. And He interacts with us in that time so that we can dwell with Him and speak with Him and live with Him. So all of the days were to be seen as special and holy. Remembering and stopping what you're doing to reflect a special holy day. That's the first picture. The second picture I want us to think about in this passage is the picture of a home as compared to a house. I want you to think about Genesis as the sacred space and the material that God is making like a carpenter building a house. He's building the earth, and as he builds it, he makes a house. But you ever notice that when the carpenters are done, the house is not ready to live in? It needs to become a home. That's a different idea, isn't it? Sometimes when we read Genesis, I think all we think about is 
God is making a house. But I think Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 says, no, he's making a home where God and man, they dwell together, and that this idea of him resting is, I think, best answered by this image of he's dwelling and he is enjoying his creation and he is participating in it. So when you hear the word rest, you probably think of relaxation. So in that sense, this word is not helpful. And if you keep thinking about taking a big nap, that God got tired. You know, he worked really hard, day and night, all day long, and then he just, his power got exhausted out, and he got a little tired, needed a nap. That's not what day seven is about. The word rest here literally means to just cease the work. He just stopped doing the work because it was finished, is what the text says. Read it again. The heavens and the earth, they were finished. They were completed. Notice the repetition of this. And then on the seventh day, God finished. They were completed. So he was done his work that he had done, so he ceased doing that work. There was nothing else to do. He rested from all the work that he had done. He looked at all of the heavens and the earth that he made. He said, it's good. No, no, it's very good. I can't improve upon it. There's nothing else to fix. There's no tinkering or touching any of it. It's very good. So he is stepping back. He is resting. He is enjoying. I think another idea of house is that if you were to make something, so let's say you're to make a car from scratch. You were to get all the pieces and you're done. There's nothing else to do. It's perfect as you could imagine it. Now you might, because you're a human, be physically tired. And so in that sense, you'd say, yeah, I need to take a rest. But really, what do you want to do when you are done with building the car? You want to get in and turn on the engine. You want to go for a ride. Same thing. That's why I'm trying to say the house image is that the purpose is not just to build an empty house. It's to put people in it. It's to furnish it, to make it a home. That, my friends, I think is the story of creation that we have before us. Is God is not just making it and twisting it day after day and then says, okay, let it go like a twisty toy and just room, it just goes like a machine. No, on day seven it says, I'm not done. I'm not done with this thing that it's just let it go and let it be. I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to make it holy. Don't you realize that every time in the Bible that you see the holiness of God being talked about, Everything around it has to deal with the presence of God. So God making this day holy is to say God is entering his presence into space, time, and matter, and he's dwelling with his people. That's the very beginning story of creation. John chapter 5 says that God is always working. Rest does not mean that God stopped working. Jesus said, my father is always doing his work. So don't read this and say, oh, God was just done working. He sits up in heaven, puts his feet on the earth as his footstool, and he just doesn't care. He is intimately involved that he comes into the home and he dwells with us. He makes it a place for us to live. This is what it means for God to rest. And I think this is an important lesson for us, an important lesson for really the gospel. When you read day seven, I want you to see God 
enjoying finished work. Taking delight in completed, finished work. I think the reason why I think this is an important lesson for you and for me is that you and I need to take delight in the finished work, not just of creation, but of new creation. What more important lesson for you and for me to learn what it means to be a Christian than to take delight in and enjoy the finished work of Jesus Christ? Remember we talked about sevens just a moment ago? Do you think that it's any coincidence that when John writes his gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written very similarly. John is like this weird book in comparison to the other three. Weird in a good way, though tells it from a different perspective. And almost every outline I've seen of that book talks about how there are signs, seven miracle signs, seven miracle signs. Do you find that interesting, that as John writes his gospels, he wants to tell the story of Jesus. He wants you to be thinking about sevens. He wants you to be thinking about completion. And he's the very writer who wrote the only documented account of Jesus hanging on the cross and saying that one amazing word that's translated into three English words. It is finished. I think there's an echo all through John's gospel of Genesis. It begins in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning. John wants you to think about Genesis. He wants you to think about creation because he's telling you Jesus is the new creation. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and he looks at all that he did for his 33 years of life, fulfilling the law, loving the neighbor, caring and honoring everyone, doing miracles, he completed the work and the task that God had done. And most climactically on the cross does he complete his work. And he delights by saying, it is finished. So no surprise that on the seventh and final day of that week that Jesus dies, the first day he rises again from the dead. No surprise then that the next miracle in John's gospel, so seven key miracles, what's the next miracle? The resurrection from the dead. The story of Jesus is wrapped up in completed, finished work. Hopefully, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you know that all of your hope, all of your spiritual work, you can look at Jesus and say, it's finished. I don't need to add anything to it. There's no tinkering with it. There's no good deeds to heap up to it. What a disgrace. What a defaming and dishonoring of that special day of history. When Jesus said, it is finished, if you're like, well, I need to add some work to that. You know, my church attendance is adding work to the cross of Jesus. That's pathetic. My giving to the poor is going to help me get right with God. No, 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 my friend. It is finished. Enjoy the finished, completed work of God in the same way that God did in creation. The story of the Bible is about finished work. It should lead us to rejoice and to sing. I think I've quoted this song so many times, but I had to do it again. It's not very good musically, so we never sing it, but the lyrics are amazing. 
When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, why do you toil so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished, yes indeed. Finished every jot, sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Those are awesome words. Somebody please write good music for them so we can sing them. Cast your deadly doing down. Do you know what that is? What's deadly doing? Any doing where you think this is going to add to the finished work of Jesus. That God is going to be somehow more pleased, more happy, more loving you because of some deed you did today or yesterday or next week. No, 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 my friend. Cast that deadly doing down and listen to the word of Jesus. It's finished. When God does miracles, he doesn't do them halfway. When God does work, he doesn't leave his project half done. When God works in you, he will finish it. He will complete it. He who began a good work will complete it. Friends, I want us to rejoice this morning in the joy of knowing we have a God who finishes his work and we have a God who wants to dwell with us. The whole reason why he went to the cross and do this work was so that the the separation that happened where we were with God in his home and then we were banished because of our rebellion and our sin against God, that God has provided a way for us to come back home. That's why he did this finished work on the cross. That's our second picture. We've seen that this is a memorial day. It is a sacred day, and it's a perpetual sacred day where we should use our time to honor God every day. That's the idea here in Genesis 2. The second picture here is that God made a home, not just a house, not just a material world, but he enters into time and space so he can dwell with man together. That's the whole story of the Bible. And thirdly, there is this picture, this idea of Sabbath rest. Now, it's not here in our verses, but I know for several of you, you're starting to think and ask questions because of even the scripture we read earlier. The whole idea of this rhythm of six days you shall work and one day you shall rest is is right from this passage. The whole cycle of the, the weekly rhythm of Israel and how they were to work and rest comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I think it asks a question for us. If we've if we've started to understand maybe a little bit, glimpsed a picture of what God's rest is, well, what about our rest? So here's the practical questions. Should you work six days and take a seventh day off? Which day is it? Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? For the Jewish Israelites, it was Saturday. So should we be taking off Saturday and work on Sunday? How do we answer some of these questions? There's some tough questions for sure. One of the things I think we need to keep in mind is first and foremost, let us see that the Sabbath is a gift to us to symbolically teach us these things that I just preached to you. The most important thing about the Sabbath is not 
that you take work off. The most important thing about the Sabbath is to teach you that God has finished His work. He is in control. There's some wisdom that God is teaching His people early on to say, listen, you're going to be tempted because of the sin in your heart to be proud and think that you can control everything. I got this. I finished everything. It's good. It's very good. So six days you will work, and one day you're just not going to work, and guess what? I'm still going to take care of you. There's wisdom in taking six days of work and one day of rest. But that doesn't answer the question of whether or not you and I should do that on Saturday or Sunday. And there's big debates among Christians and people that think about these matters. But I think we need to keep that idea first and foremost in our minds. The wisdom of God to do it. The beauty of how this tells us the story of Jesus and the gospel. Furthermore, I think we should turn our Bibles to the New Testament and see the way these people answer this question. So if you would, let's turn quickly to Romans chapter 14. And what I have here for you is not so much an answer, yes or no, you need to believe this way versus this way, but rather, I think what we have here is a principle, and maybe if you want to call it a filter for how we should read the Old Testament law, including all Ten Commandments, and including all other laws of the Old Testament. So in Romans 14, we're jumping right into the flow of thought here, but I want you to just see a couple quick observations from these verses. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. I want you to just notice first in verse 5 the way it says that some people are going to esteem one day as better or set apart than all the other days. That sounds like the Sabbath to me. Then it says, but other people might just say, no, the original creation was to say that that day was to be honored all days. So here you have a debate. Is there one special day or are really all days to be honored to the Lord? And his answer is what? Each one should be fully convinced in your own mind. In other words, here's Phil's translation. This is a debatable matter and you shouldn't divide in the church over it. Some of you might think that the Sabbath is Saturday. Some of you might think that it's Sunday. Some of you think you should work six days and take one day off, not just for general rest and wisdom, but to honor God. Others of you will be like, no, I'm going to honor God every single day. The point is, is that you shouldn't argue with one another where you don't love each other. You know why? Keep reading. Drop your eyes down to verse 13 and notice the way he talks about this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. I just want you to see that phrase there. You are no longer walking in love. If you are judging, passing judgment, arguing with in such a way that's not loving. And if your brother is grieved by what you eat, and you're like, I'm going to just do it anyway. I don't care. So here he's talking about food and food sacrifice to idols and all these different debates people had about unclean and clean foods. Because if imagine, you have a bunch of Jewish people that are coming to faith in Jesus, but then you have a bunch of Gentile people, and they're all in the same room together. There's going to be some clashing. And Romans and many other books of the New Testament are trying to explain how we should deal with those kind of clashing. And here, the principle, the filter, is what? Love. I think right here, Paul is appropriately understanding the words of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? All of the law of Moses is summarized by love God and love your neighbor. The fulfillment of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. The point of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. When you think of the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath day, most people argue that the first four commandments are about loving God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Love God. And then the next commandments are all about loving your neighbor. Honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. You think about those commands, there's the two tables of the law. So your filter as you read the Old Testament is to see in what way can I obey or understand this command to love God or love my neighbor. And as Romans says, each one of you should be fully convinced in your own mind that my motivation, my action, and my desire is to love God or to love my neighbor. That, my friends, I think is the filter of love as we read the Old Testament and give room and space for unity amongst the diversity of views or backgrounds or theological convictions that are in this church or in any church. I think if we unnecessarily divided over this issue, that that would divide Jesus' bride unnecessarily. There's certain things that we need to say, listen, this is what we believe as a church. We believe these things because in order to be a church together, we have to function in a certain way. But the Sabbath, I don't think, fits in that category. We can be a church of people where some of you think, this is my Sabbath. Sunday is a Sabbath day. Some of you can think, well, no, really, Sabbath is on Saturday. And others of you think, I just have Sabbath every day. You see, there's space and there's room for us to say, is your motivation to love God and to love your neighbor? Let me give you one more example in the New Testament. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. One more example of how Sabbath days are brought up in Paul's mind. And I think what you'll see again is that it's a debatable matter. Colossians chapter 2, this will be 984 in the Black Bibles around you. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Sounds very similar to what we just read in Romans. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or there it is, a Sabbath. Now, the new moons and the festivals were also kind of built off of the tradition of taking special days, and you take even a week out of the day, seven days often, where you'd say, okay, we're going to have a whole week of holy days. So, here you're seeing not just the one day out of the week, but even the new moon festivals 
and the other celebrations like the Passover and other times where they'd set aside time and say, this is a holy day to the Lord. This is a holy week to the Lord. And you are to do what? Pass no judgment on questions about unclean or clean food, about festivals or Sabbath days. And then look at verse 17. This is a good place for us to conclude. All of these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. The Bible, I think, is so clear at times. Even though there's debatable matters, even though we may not agree together in this room about the Sabbath, can we all agree that the Bible is all about Jesus? From beginning to end. It's a story about God wanting to dwell with His people in this home. He's with us. That's the great climactic end of Revelation 21. And God and man dwell together. He's with us. God with us. Oh yeah, that's Jesus. God with us. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're a Christian who's struggling and feeling very far off from God, know that God wants to be near. God is not the distant deity who sits above the throne of the earth and looks down on us and says, I hope you guys get it figured out down there. He comes in and he enters time. He enters space. He becomes both. And in the fullness of time, God became man. God sent his son Jesus so that on a cross, he would die. He would say, it is finished so that Revelation 14 could say, it is blessed for every man who dies in the Lord, because he will rest from his labors. Is that not a good thought for you to leave today with? It is a blessed thing for a man to die in the Lord, because he will rest from his labors. Let's pray together.